the railroads, we have allowed them to socialize the costs of doing business on the people of East Palestine and similar communities. If you, as a railroad, have to pay every single cent when your train crashes and you basically set off a chemical bomb in the middle of one of my constituents' hometowns, if you had to pay for that, you would respond to the public safety concerns much differently than the railroads do. But because a lot of that falls on the American taxpayer and the Ohio taxpayer in this case, these railroads, I don't think, conduct business the way that they should. So really, this is about basic fairness. If you're going to cause the problem, you ought to pay for it. Welcome, everyone. This is episode 100 of Moment of Truth. I can't believe that I've taped 150 hours of myself talking, except those of you who regularly accuse me of being a relentless narcissist will say that's the least surprising thing in the entire world. Um, we're extremely grateful to be able to uh, tape this episode with someone who is as much a part of our origin story as we are. It was an article that Senator Vance wrote in April of 2020 that gave us the idea for American Moment. He was one of our biggest advocates and supporter. Uh, uh, supporters in the days when no one smart should have been an advocate or supporter for us, um, but he saw something and was extremely generous with his time, and we were quite lucky to catch him right before he started running for U.S. Senate, and it's been such a joy to watch uh, his successful campaign and what's been a very, very eventful few months in Washington, D.C. for him already. Please give him a round of applause. So how's D.C.? <laughs> it's good. First of all, congratulations. Uh, what what? So I've done this. This is my second time. What episode number was I? It was like early 30s or something. Oh, OK, so no, that's not very impressive. Um, I joke. I, I joke with John Ossoff, who's, of course, a Democrat from Georgia, uh, but he's the uh, he's the youngest U.S. senator. and I'm the second youngest that he should never uh, go ahead of me down a, a flight of stairs because I'm very, <laughs> very jealous of the fact that I'm only the second youngest senator. Um, it's going good. You know, I'm having a good time. Uh, obviously, you know, events intervene and they they affect the job that you do. So uh, we've, of course, had this really terrible situation in East Palestine, Ohio, which has taken up a lot of my time. Uh, but it's taken up my time in a good way. Right. I mean, you're doing the things that you were actually elected to do. You're serving people and hopefully serving them well. Uh, I think we've gotten a lot of progress on some things that matter and also gotten a lot of movement. The thing that I've realized about the Senate is that, you know, as much as I complain and certainly complain on the campaign trail about how Congress doesn't do anything, and I certainly don't think it does enough, you know, it's possible just to use the bully pulpit of a Senate office to make the regulatory state or to make, you know, a private company move on things in a way that you want them to. And in particular, you know, I thought five, six weeks ago, Norfolk Southern, which is the train company that caused the crash in East Palestine, was taking way too long uh, to clean up the, the disaster site. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, I thought they were doing a pretty good job, but then the EPA was making it hard for them to do their job. And so, you know, I think on both of those things, even though we didn't pass a law, we actually made some good progress. You know, I'm enjoying my colleagues. Um, you know, most people are actually, you know, they get along pretty well as much as we all have, you know, partisan combat on issues from time to time. Um, we, 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 I think we enjoy each other's company, which is good. Uh, the thing that I'm really annoyed about is that, you know, senators are prima donnas in a certain way. And so it takes a really long time to kick them out of their old offices so you can move into a new office. Uh, so if you come to my office, you will see that it's in the basement of Dirksen. Um, you know, I only see sunlight when I when I come out to actually tape things like this. And I'm usually a big hater of, of daylight savings time, but it's been really good, actually, because it's, it's meant that I see daylight most days now 
Uh, whereas before I just hung out in the basement all the time. So anyway, it's good. Uh, I'm enjoying it. And uh, thanks for all your support. Not just, uh, you know, you guys, the two of you, um, but everybody in the audience. And congrats on the on the beard and the child, Nick. That's good. Yeah, two two big glad, things that have happened. Please don't encourage the you. beard. Yours I'm, is much I'm better. I'm glad you've got the priorities in order. It's the beard and then the kid. What's your wife think about it? That's that's the important thing. Uh, she actually prefers it. I, 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 I think she wants me to hide more of my face. Yeah. <laughs> So you said something really interesting, which is the elements of uh, being a senator that affect your sort of witness in public life, being um, on the bully pulpit and talking. I mean, you know, when you were a private citizen, albeit a famous author and, and political figure in your own right, you know, if you started saying that a company like Norfolk Southern was doing something wrong, I mean, I'm sure their PR team would notice, but they wouldn't really, you know, move into action. There wouldn't be 100 lobbyists mobilized in order to uh, change your opinion. But um, I asked you the same question right after your inauguration, uh, and you said no. But do you feel different? Does does that influence that you're able to have on the news cycle, on uh, public opinion, um, on the events that happen in Washington? Has it gone to your head yet? <laughs> uh, I hope not. I mean, I guess I don't know. You guys are probably a better judge. I think you're always, you know, in some ways, uh, the worst judge of yourself. Uh, I, the very first committee hearing that I had was the Senate Banking Committee. So I'm on the Banking Committee and the Commerce Committee. Um, I'm not on any foreign policy related committees, which I'm sure has nothing to do with my viewpoints. Uh, but I, but I was, I was on the very first committee was the banking committee, and Sherrod Brown, of course, my Democratic colleague from the state of Ohio, uh, is the chairman, and he left, and then Tim Scott left, and just the, the nature of the committee ended up being that I was actually the ranking member uh, on on in my very first committee, and I, you know, I was I was drunk with power for that one minute, and I, I I'm still chasing the dragon from that. That brief period where I was the, the chairman of the banking committee. Uh, no, I mean, I, look, I, I I think that if <laughs> if being a senator had already gone to my head three months in, then I must be like a really depraved person. Uh, I think that, I think the question is when you're in D.C. for five years, for 10 years and you really get wrapped up in everybody calling you senator. Uh, I do think that it can have a very corrosive effect on a person's soul. And the thing that I, I just I try to do is just, you know, be a normal person and have conversations. The thing that that is hard, the thing that, you know, that, that if I could make one complaint about being a senator as opposed to being a Senate candidate is, uh, you know, being a candidate is much more frenetic. Like you're on the road constantly and you're doing this and you're doing that. The days are much longer, even very long days like today actually aren't that long compared to being a candidate. But because you're on the road so much, you can talk to people all the time. So I just remember feeling like, you know, I could I, I could crack, you know, the <laughs> the drive from Cincinnati to East Palestine is about four and a half hours. Right. Uh, you can read a lot and talk to a lot and of people and, and actually think thoughts when you're a candidate. The thing that I, I think we have to you know, I have to do a better job of is there's always something to do when you're in session as a senator. Right. There are committee hearings you're bouncing to and from. And I, I do think that there's a little bit less time to actually sit and absorb it all. And I think, you know, not to sound wild and conspiratorial, but I actually think that one of the problems with the institution is that if you're if you're thinking about this from the perspective of the bureaucracy, if these guys are busy all the time, then they're not thinking enough about how to constructively do their job. And if they're not, then they're just going along with the flow, which if you're a person of power is probably a good thing. But if you're trying to push back against what's going on in D.C. for the sake of the people, it's probably a bad thing. I'm curious to hear more uh, about, you know, the reaction of the conservative uh, movement to you being a, a senator in D.C. You know, I've been I've been shocked to discover that uh, apparently attempting to make railroads safe is now socialism. Uh, you know, we got many uh, conservative institutions that are not too happy about that. Tell us more about 
um, you know, how you see the conservative movement changing here in D.C. with your arrival? Yeah. So, you know, there's this big question that sort of hovered over my campaign, I think hovers over a lot of what you do, which is how friendly is the conservative movement or should the conservative movement be towards corporate America? And I think there's both a sort of populist conservative and a populist libertarian answer to this question uh, that will often, not not always, but will often converge on the same themes. But I think that if you're an old guard chamber of commerce Republican, then what I'm saying is sometimes very shocking and very jarring. And the fact that I don't just criticize American foreign policy, but I say, look, uh, are there people getting rich from this foreign policy and should we be a little bit more skeptical of whether their financial interests overlap with the national interests? Like, that's pretty scary to a lot of people. And I think on the railway safety thing, I mean, look, I, I think we're going to get uh, that, that 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 bill is going to pass. I think we may even get a majority of Republicans behind it. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I do think that there was this sort of knee jerk reaction when we start talking about railway safety to say, well, well, you know, is 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 any regulation of the railroad industry consistent with sort of a free market approach to the economy? And, and my immediate pushback to that was, well, what the hell are you talking about? Free market railroads? Really? These guys just got bailed out of a labor dispute by the federal government three months ago. And you guys want to now you know, pretend that they're sort of this libertarian ideal of a private company? And, and, and oh, by the way, the way that they went about this, and this is something you know, Saurabh knows well, some of you know well, I can be a very petty person. <laughs> And when they st when the railroad lobby started going after not just me, but after my staff, I got very pissed off about that. And I frankly think the bill is going to be worse and we're going to get more Republicans on it purely because they decided to go after my staff instead of going after the substantive disagreements, some of which are very reasonable. Like I'm not saying, you know, you know, I'm not committed to anything that I do being perfect. Um, so I'm certainly willing to have that conversation. So any anyway, I think that there is this real sense among the base and among certain leaders, people who are paying attention to what's going on, that the base is not cool with a no, a no give and take alliance with corporate America. They're sick of being used by, as pawns in a chamber of commerce agenda. That's true on defense policy. It's true on immigration. It's true on a lot of things. Um, but a lot of leaders in this town, I think, haven't quite, haven't quite caught up. I will say, the good thing, the optimistic take on this is if you look at the strongest pushback on uh, the Railway Safety Act, it has largely come from the industry lobby and from organizations that don't have a lot of influence in the movement. OK, uh, if you were to rank the 10 most influential conservatives in this town from a movement perspective, not a single one of them has pushed back on the piece of legislation. So I think there's a there's a broad recognition. The party's moving I don't think that you want to, you know, move for the sake of moving, but I think there are certain issues where we have to recognize uh, major multinational corporations are not always aligned with the national interest. That is a fact of life, and if you're not willing to deal with it, I don't think you're willing to do serious policy making in this town. R Railroad companies don't get to nuke small towns in Ohio and get yes. away with it. Um, this East Palestine thing has been fascinating at a certain level because I can't think of an example in recent history where a freshman senator representing this ideologically heterodox movement was thrown into the limelight two months into being uh, a U.S. senator newly inaugurated. What has that experience been? Do you feel like you've had to play catch up faster than you expected? And uh, how quickly have you had to get your reps in actually legislating? Uh, you have the Railway Safety Act, which is a great piece of legislation that might address some of these issues. What are some of the challenges and, and reflections on this process been? 
I mean, I think it's where it's been toughest is on my staff, right? So if you think the average Senate office, uh, at least for a, a state the size of Ohio, is about 40 people. I don't know how many people we have. What, what is it, 20, 25 people in the office right now, give or take? Um, you know, probably probably a third of them are here today, actually. Hey, guys, you didn't have to come, by There's the way. There's a lot of tall yeah, I wouldn't, ones. I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. fire anybody if you didn't come to this this thing. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 I mean... There's so much to monitor and the situation changes so frequently. So I think for our staff where they're trying to figure out, you know, where is Russell floor to and like, where do I walk JD to when he has to go to this meeting to all of a sudden be thrown into very serious policymaking? I think it definitely required some catch up. I mean, you know, for, for, for me, a lot of this is just being visible and being present and making sure you're staying on top of the things you have to stay on top of, right? Um, and, and, I, and I think that was easier for me in part because I just got off the campaign trail. I go to East Palestine, Ohio. It's a crazy statistic. So, somebody told me that they polled in 2018, they polled some Senate race or some governor's race in the state of Ohio, and they looked at statewide name ID of different politicians in the state of Ohio. And of course, John Kasich was highest because he was the sitting governor. Rob Portman, who had just gone through a campaign two years earlier, was polling at something like 35% statewide name ID. So that stuff drops off pretty quickly, right? Um, but I, you know, I was I was running four months ago, right? So I drop in East Palestine. Everybody knows who I am. It was a very heavily Vance territory, and so it was much easier, I think, for me to do what I needed to do. And I think the staff did a great job of just figuring out, okay, what are the things that we need to know? Who do we need to yell at? Who do we need to complain to? What do we need to identify? And, and that that detective work, I think, has required a very quick adjustment from the staff. But I think they've done a good job. What needs to happen for the people of East Palestine over the next few months and years? And specifically, what's the federal role in what needs to happen there? Yeah, so I'd, I'd bucket this into three things. Um, the short-term health, the long-term health, and the long-term economic impact. So short-term health, you still have a mound of dirt in East Palestine that's about 30,000 cubic, or sorry, sorry, 30,000 tons of toxic dirt that they have dug out of the ground that has to go somewhere, okay? And you will never allow the people of East Palestine to live a normal life until that stuff is out of their town. And there's been a lot of resistance to taking it. And the implication is that it should just sit in East Palestine forever. I refuse to accept that. So we've done a lot of work to try to get that stuff moving. I think that we're now finally making a pretty good amount of progress on that. I suspect about a month from now, a month and a half from now, that cleanup will be completed. But, you know, I've been wrong about this stuff in the past and we're going to stay on top of it. The second thing is the long term health impact. So there was this this moment and I won't name the guy, but where a GOP congressman not from the state of Ohio dropped into East Palestine like five days after um, five days after I was first there and said, you should feel safe about the drinking water. The air is fine. The water is fine. Drink the water. Okay. and the thing is, if you actually go to East Palestine and talk to people, like they're not worried that they're going to take a sip of water and drop dead. What they're worried about is what happens if their grandkids drink the water for the next 10 years? Are they going to have weird cancers? Okay. And the thing that we've realized, again, this goes to the staff having a pretty having a pretty steep learning curve is there is no bureaucracy within the federal government that is designed to answer the question of what do you do with chronic exposure to toxic chemicals? No one can answer that question. Nobody can even tell you how you might go about answering that question. So we commissioned a study from an epidemiologist that I know to try to identify the answer to that question. And that's one thing we're going to have to do over the next three, four years is monitor that. So hopefully 
we can give people confidence that they have no health problems, or God forbid, if they do have health problems, we at least know where it came from and can get them uh, the, the the care that they need. And then the third thing is, you know, economically, this is a devastating thing for the people of East Palestine. So, you know, I talked to a farmer a couple of weeks ago. She grows um, hay, but she also raises chickens mostly for fresh eggs. Okay. Who wants to buy fresh farm eggs from East Palestine right now? Who wants to feed their animals the hay grown on a farm in East Palestine right now? Well, the answer is pretty much nobody. Okay. And what that means, think about the home values. People who've lived in the same house for 40 years, their home was paid off. Now it's worth half what it was worth two months ago. The economic devastation, the effect on the tax base, the effect on the local schools is going to be with us for a long time. So we're eventually going to roll out some sort of economic aid package. And I think that's probably the most direct and obvious thing the federal government can do. By the way, on this question of, you know, the free market orthodoxy versus, you know, the people who are challenging that orthodoxy. Sometimes I think that this argument is useless to the real facts on the ground because the railroads, we have allowed them to socialize the costs of doing business on the people of East Palestine and similar communities. If you as a railroad have to pay every single cent when your train crashes and you basically set off a chemical bomb in the middle of one of my constituents' hometowns, if you had to pay for that, you would respond to the public safety concerns much differently than the railroads do. But because a lot of that falls on the American taxpayer and the Ohio taxpayer in this case, these railroads, I don't think, conduct business the way that they should. So really, this is about basic fairness. If you're going to cause the problem, you ought to pay for it. I hope that DC takes your recommendations and and runs with them. One of the things that's always striking is when it comes to these domestic crises, these parts of the country that have been left behind by the uh, bipartisan class in DC is where their attentions are actually focused. And I think uh, you and I share the belief that they're sometimes overly focused on foreign policy concerns, uh, namely, uh, at this point in time, what's going on in Ukraine. You actually just came uh, from a vote uh, on the Senate floor on a amendment to the AUMF repeal. I have no idea how that vote went. Do we know what the numbers are yet? I think when when I left the Senate, um, there were 13 of us who had voted yes and 41 who had voted it down already. Okay, and so you need 60 votes to pass it. So I don't think it's going to pass. Yeah. And this <laughs> and this was an amendment to appoint an inspector general over the aid Correct. to Ukraine. Uh, something that is a very very low level step that could be taken to impose some sanity on the 115 billion um, that has been spent so far. Uh, you've railed against the blob in Washington D.C. for years. Is it is it worse than you realized? Is it is it really that bad? Yeah. So here are a couple just anecdotes from some of my conversations with colleagues and staff, not just my staff, but but other staff too. So I've been told with a straight face that we can say with 100% confidence that not a dollar of our 120 billion dollars has been misappropriated in Ukraine. And when you ask the basic follow up, well, well, how do you know that? Uh, it's it's like well you know my my opinion was was predicated on you not asking any follow up questions right because I have no idea how to answer that question but there there is this effort to just ignore the very basic questions about what's happening to our money here's another crazy thing that's happening you ask people what's the end goal like what are we actually trying to do we spent 120 billion dollars in Ukraine and maybe you support that funding I obviously do not but what are we trying to accomplish here is the goal to get the Ukrainians to throw the Russians back to their original borders, uh, because I think that goal is militarily preposterous and actually risks the very escalation that all of us are trying to prevent. 
is the goal to just basically have a World War One style trench warfare in eastern Ukraine for the next 10 years? Because I don't know how that goal serves us. It's terrible for the worldwide food supply. It's terrible for a European uh, energy supplies and refugee problems. Like, how is that actually in our interest? But nobody can articulate the craziest part of our Ukraine policy. Again, whether you agree with me or not, is that nobody has articulated what we're actually doing with the money. That is insane to me. And I mentioned earlier not having, you know, a whole lot of opportunity to just sit down and think about things. The one the one exception to that in the last couple of weeks is I've tried to make myself an expert uh, as much as as much as I can on what are the weapons we should be giving the Taiwanese to make it less likely that China will invade? And what are the weapons that we have given to the Ukrainians over the last two years? And how do those things overlap? Because given our limited defense industrial base, we can't manufacture that many weapons uh, because, you know, we idiotically decided to allow everybody else to manufacture stuff for us. Because of that, how much damage are we doing to our munitions supply by continuing to do what we're doing in Ukraine? The answer, it turns out, is a lot. Like there is a direct cannibalization between what we need to send to the Taiwanese and what we're sending to the Ukrainians. And when people talk about the dollars here, it, it, it's, it's like, you know, it's the McKinsey consultant way of doing economics that ignores the fact that beneath the dollars is a real economy. So you can say, and it sounds somewhat reasonable, that we're the richest country in the history of the world, and we can send $20 billion to Ukraine over the next two months, and we can spend $15 billion to the Taiwanese. But the Chinese are not going to be pushed back from Taiwan with dollar bills, right? They're going to be pushed back with bullets and with artillery shells and with Stinger, Patriots, and other missile systems. How many of those can we manufacture in the next two years? And can we manufacture enough to support both the Ukrainians and the Taiwanese? The answer is, of course not. It's not even close. There's a good argument we can't even manufacture enough just to support the Taiwanese. So when people tell you there's no tension between our Ukrainian policy and our Taiwanese slash China policy, they're full of Why uh, are we not able to make... Uh, you know, those kinds of weapons in the United States anymore. Yeah, Like during World War II, you know, we were supplying ourselves, the Soviet Union, the UK. The arsenal of democracy. Yeah. Like what what happened? Why aren't we able to do that anymore? So I, I think that, I mean, look, I've been, I'm going to pat myself on the back here for being right about this. But, uh, you know, for, for those of us who've been warning about this, what we've been saying is the cost to American manufacturing is not just the direct and obvious stuff. It's not just the jobs lost in Northeast Ohio or Southwest Ohio. It's not just the opioid problem that moved in when the jobs moved away. It's that we've done incredibly damaging, dynamic things to our economy. That when you lose the supply chain of a given product, it's not as easy as saying, well, we're going to reshore that product. You can't just reshore the product. Okay, if you're going to make a missile, there are hundreds of components, some of them very, very technical some of them less so, but you have to have the components and the access to them to consistently manufacture these things at scale. If you want to say, go from manufacturing four Patriot systems to 20 Patriot systems, that requires a logistical investment and change in the entire, the entire manufacturing output of your economy on multiple different sectors, over multiple different geographies, over multiple different components. And right now, what we found is that we didn't just lose the end capability. We've lost a lot of the stuff necessary to get us to a point where we, we would need to manufacture these weapon systems. So basically what happened 
is that we decided then, you know, and this is the era of globalization. And I don't want to repeat this too much because I think most of us know the story. We decided that America could be the leader in services, finance, accounting, lawyers, and technology, and other countries could be really good at manufacturing things for us. And the trade-off is that we lost a lot of that supply chain that's necessary. Even if you design a really cool missile in the United States of America, it's really hard to actually design it with components that we control in our own industrial supply chain. Uh, and that requires a lot of rejiggering. It requires a lot of reinvestment. It requires a massive change in incentives. And it also requires a real investment in doing it, which we really haven't done. I mean, if you go back to the Trump administration, you know, Trump made this point very explicitly that unless we reshore our manufacturing, it's going to be bad for American workers, bad for our troops and so forth. But he did not have nearly the backbench support in Congress to make the kinds of investments that would be necessary for that. Joe Biden, actually, one of the few things I'll give Joe Biden credit on is that he's at least signaled rhetorically to the need to reshore, but then he pursues an energy policy that forces things further and further offshore. So it's a complete disaster, uh, but at least he says the right things every now and then, right? Um, it would require a massive investment. It would require us to completely cast aside the green energy fanatics, to invest in our own energy supplies, first of all, and then to really commit ourselves to bringing parts of the industrial supply chain back. Until we do that, we're going to continue to fall behind. One of the things that's so concerning about what's been going on with the Ukrainian war is that it has created the circumstances that people like yourself and Oberst Kolbe and others have warned about for a very long time, which is it strengthened China's hand, not weakened yes. it. What do you make of this new collaboration and integration that seems to be occurring between China and Russia, and in some cases, Iran as well? Um, just this last uh, week or the week before, Xi and Putin seem to have deepened their friendship in a very public way. What, what are the consequences of this going to be? Yeah, so I went back to the initial statement that I issued after Russia invaded Ukraine. And, um, you know, the, one of the things that I say in that statement that held up very well is if we don't play this right, the, f the effect of this war will be to drive Russia and China closer together. And I think that's exactly what's happened. And there's this weird perspective in American foreign policy, especially neoconservative foreign policy, that what will prevent Russia and China from getting closer together is for America to talk tough. Right. You hear this all the time. If we don't fight Vladimir Putin, we don't push Putin back in Ukraine, then the Chinese are going to believe that we're weak, that we don't keep our word, and then they're going to go after Taiwan. That is not true. The thing that's going to prevent the Chinese from going into Taiwan is if the Taiwanese have enough bullets to fight the Chinese, and right now they don't. And there's no conceivable pathway for them to get there over the next couple of years. The Chinese do not care about eighth grade chess thumping. They care about hard power. And right now we don't have enough of it. That's why you see Russia, China, and Iran uniting together is because they see that America is weak. Again, not that we're not chest thumping enough, not that you know we don't have enough neoconservatives threatening a nuclear war in Eastern Europe. The problem is we don't have enough hard power, and that is inviting weakness, um, or sorry, that weakness is inviting a lot of new alliances all over the world. And it's not just these guys. It's it's I mean, look. There's a lot of there are a lot of, of Gulf nations, right, um, that I think are going to be tempted to ally with Russia and China. Uh, the Iran thing may complicate that, but you know the Chinese are able to exercise a lot of economic leverage. There are a lot of African nations that are looking at the 
the Chinese as much better long-term economic partners without maybe the same cultural imperialism that you get from the U.S. State Department, that's causing us problems. We're being very, very stupid and pushing a lot of the worst people in the world together, and that's increasing their power. Final point on that, the craziest thing that's happened maybe from the Russia-Ukraine war, and it doesn't get nearly enough attention. It's one of these things that I think we'll look back on in 15 years. And when people you know, like me and, and Dan Caldwell and others are considered right about this conflict, this is one of the points that they will say, oh, yeah, that was obvious. That should have been a bigger problem. Remember when we imposed sanctions on the Russian economy that people described as a financial nuclear bomb and nothing happened? Russian GDP barely shrank at all compared to its economic peers. It looks even better. The, the, their ability to get around the sanctions by, let's say, mixing their petroleum with trace amounts of other nations' petroleum, the willingness of Iran and other nations to sell Russian petroleum by another name and Russian gas, we set off what everybody thought was the most important American financial weapon, and nothing happened. And that is crazy. And if you're thinking about, if you're Iran, and one of the most important things that happened in your nation's history in the past 30 years is that America destroyed the Iraq economy with sanctions, and you say, man, that's really scary, right? We don't want to do that. So we're going to listen to the Americans when they tell us what to do. But now we try to do the same thing to Russia, and it completely failed. I think that we made a huge mistake. I don't think that we were nearly prepared enough for how good the Russians would be at evading the sanctions. And I think it's done incredible damage to our credibility. And that's another reason you see these guys joining closer together. It's been shocking to see how this entire Ukrainian war and the American response to it has been a demonstration of how little stopping power, all the traditional tools that the American foreign policy establishment likes yeah. to use are. I mean, and and exactly what you said have, has happened. We've essentially realigned the world uh, and given it the reps on how to survive in a multipolar world. Turns out sanctions, kind of fake. You can just route them through whatever country you want. And yeah. we've created a parallel financial system headquartered in Beijing, which is, I think, going to be the lasting legacy of this war. Speaking of finance, uh, in other examples of you being... Uh, sort of perfectly situated for the moment we find ourselves in. You are a venture capitalist who has invested in technology companies, who sits on Senate Banking Committee, and uh, a little institution called Silicon Valley Bank just collapsed. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of all of it? So I'll try, I'll try to be brief here. Look, uh, I've done business with Silicon Valley Bank before. What I'm going to say and what I have said publicly is a statement against financial interests. But I think that what happened is the uninsured depositors got a bailout. It was terrible for basic fairness in our financial system. It rewarded a lot of millionaires, including a lot of out-of-country millionaires. And it also further enshrined a two-tier banking system where if you're big enough and you're powerful enough, you get a bailout. And if you're not big and not powerful enough, you don't. And that's that's a disaster. Now, I understand the argument. And some of my very good friends, I mean, David Sachs and I uh, haven't disagreed on much over the last four or five years. He's a very, very smart guy. Uh, and a very, very just, you know, he's he's a patriotic guy whose interests are in the right place. His argument is, if you don't bail out the uninsured depositors of Silicon Valley Bank, you get a bank run that leads to a broader financial panic. I don't think that's right. I think it was possible to ensure there was enough liquidity in the financial system to prevent a bank run without saving the uninsured depositors of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, that's my view. And if you just look at the, the, the fairness implications of this. So the FDIC basically wrote about $150 billion 
of checks to Silicon Valley's uninsured Silicon Valley banks uninsured depositors and other people to prevent this bank run. Okay. Most of the people who benefit from that money are extremely wealthy. Almost all of them are way, way wealthier than the average American. Okay. Where is that money coming from? Of course, money doesn't grow on trees. It comes from a fee levied on community banks. So in short, small community banks who will never benefit from a bailout are paying higher fees so that millionaires and sometimes billionaires in Silicon Valley can get their uninsured depositors bailed out. Like, that is not okay. And what makes it especially troubling to me is that, uh, you know, there's no obvious rule at play here that you can follow if you're a small community bank. Like, do we want to be Canada, which has like three banks in the entire economy? Their entire financial system is run by three banks. That's true of a, of a lot of European countries. Do we want to have a community banking uh, ecosystem in the United States of America? I think that we do. I think it's good for our small businesses to be funded by people who are a little bit closer to home, understand the neighborhoods and the people working there a little bit better. Do we want to destroy that system? Because if we do, one of the best ways that you can do that is to tell everybody you have an unlimited uninsured, excuse me, unlimited uninsured deposits if you're at a big bank but you're screwed if you're at a small bank. And that's basically what the FDIC and the Fed just did. How did uh, the regulators miss this? Um, you know, it's, it seemed like... Because they're all woke idiots. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I hate to say this, but look, I've talked to a number of... I've probably talked to the CEOs of the top 10 banks, almost nearly every single one of them in the past three weeks. And every single one of them has said... If you had a 23-year-old first-year accountant go into Silicon Valley Bank with a basic examiner's book, they would have said, this bank is about to fail. And that would have been that. It would have been very, very easy. The regulators weren't looking at the company. Uh, that, that's the only way to explain what happened is they weren't actually looking at the company. And this is, you know, th this is one of the reasons why we have to be somewhat circumspect on, on the new riot or whatever you're going to call our broad movement. Um, Sometimes when people say the regulators are way dumber than the entities that they're regulating, they're actually being true and honest about that. And so we have to be careful here because, look, I'm, I'm not opposed to regulating the banks in principle, but the regulations to prevent this were in place. It's the people on the ground who failed to apply those regulations. And that suggests to me that we need a broader overhaul in the financial system. We need to actually end too big to fail we need to end the two-tier banking system. We can't rely on the regulators to regulate themselves out of this because it's clear that at least in the financial space, the regulators are just much less good than the people that they're regulating. One final question, and then we can turn it over to the audience for Q&A, so be thinking about it. It seems like with the way that our financial system has gone over the last few years, your you know, heads they win, tails you lose when it comes to middle-class Americans. So in a low interest rate environment, trying to buy a house, it gets purchased by like a foreigner, $100,000 over asking, and you didn't even have a chance. And in a high interest rate environment, good luck getting a mortgage. It's It's ridiculous. What's the way out of the current state of our financial system in a way that would actually benefit middle class and working class Americans? Oh man, that's a big one, and I'm not sure I know the answer. Fix all to the it. problems. I mean, I, I look. I, I think one of the things that definitely happened in a super low interest rate environment is that capital flowed to um, it flowed to two industries to an extraordinary degree: finance and tech. Okay, so if you look at really what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank 
bailout. One of the ways to understand it is that QE was a massive, massive subsidy to finance and tech. And then they raised the interest rates and all the finance and tech companies basically went, you know, or they lost a lot of value. Not all of them went bust. That would be overstating it. Um, but you, you can't have a financial system that creates a massive asset inflation for the banks and for the tech companies. And then when there's a correction, basically come in and say, well, we're going to protect you from the downside risk, right? That's socialized risk, um, socialized loss and privatized reward. That's like, that's how you get the pitchforks, right? Um, because to your point, the middle class people end up suffering the most. Um, how do you fix that? Uh, you know, one view that I have is there's a very clear connection between globalization and financialization. And so if you look as the era of globalization really reached its apex, you saw the percentage of the economy that was gobbled up by finance and tech go up and up and up. So I think that you want more of the economy in the things where people are actually making things and where most Americans are actually working. You cannot have an economy where the growth is all in finance and tech. And unfortunately, that's been the story of the American economy for the past 15 or so years. So um, I, I think a big part of the answer is we need to really, really end the era of globalization. Uh, I think part of the story is that we really need to end the two-tier banking system. And there's, there's, there's probably a lot more to do beyond that, but I won't attempt to solve the problem. But it, 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 that is, to me, the fundamental problem. Not enough productive capital investment, way too much chasing asset price inflation. And what it gets is an economy like we've had for the past 15 years, where if you're in finance or tech, it's great. If you're in any other sector, you're not doing so well. Yeah, it turns out you can't base a reserve currency on quant trading and SaaS companies. Well, and that's, yeah, that's exactly right. And by the way, you know, I, I'm, uh, this is like maybe super heterodox. I, I am not sure that I think the reserve currency is actually good for the United States of America. Uh, I think there is a good argument that reserve currency status is akin to coal in Appalachia. It's a resource curse, right? It allows your consumers to consume very cheaply, right? That's been the story of the American economy for the last 15 or so years, uh, even before that, is we can just borrow basically in an unlimited way because we have the reserve currency. So that's a massive subsidy to incurring debt. The debt is cheaper, even in raised interest rate environments. This is one of the crazy things about what's going on right now is the market is in some ways pricing future interest rates lower than what the Fed is right now. That's kind of weird. Um, so we have this massive subsidy to cheap debt for the American consumer. Well, that's good, right? Consuming is important, especially food, medicine, things like that. But I think it's a massive tax on American producers. So the weirdest thing, just one final point on this. I know we're getting the weeds of, of financing globalization a little bit. But the weirdest thing to me about the last 30 or 40 years of the American economy is go back to previous eras of globalization. And what you normally see is the rich company invest, or sorry, the rich country investing in the poor country. The poor country is elevating its standard of living and also providing some products that the rich company needs. Okay, that's the story of the UK helping America industrialize uh, in the early part of, of the 19th century and into the mid 19th century. With China and America, it's been almost completely inverted, where American consumers are borrowing money from Chinese peasants to make the things the Chinese peasants, or to buy the things the Chinese peasants make for them, okay? So like money is flowing uphill. Like that's actually the nature of the American economy for the past 30 years. We've been borrowing money from poor Chinese people so that we can buy the things they make for us. 
That's really weird. And I wonder if that's a consequence of the reserve currency status. Absolutely fascinating stuff. We've got time for questions. Who would like to ask the first question? We've got one over there, Max. Please ask about anything. Don't, you know, throw me some curveballs here. Yeah, I think I got a curveball. Tell them softballs only. No, yeah. And uh, thanks for your time, Senator Vance. Um, so I, I've been reading the Lamp magazine since the first issue, and sure. And you wrote the um, conversion story, or, or you wrote about your conversion story. So I was wondering if you could talk about your experience being Catholic in D.C. Um, has it been easy, hard? Have you found your found a home? And um, yeah, just like talk about how it's influenced your first couple months in the Senate as well. Thank you. Yeah, so so you know, my, my wife and kids are in Cincinnati right now, and so um, I, as all my staff will know, as soon as we do our last vote on Thursday, I am like the first person who leaves. Right, I'm trying to get out of here as quickly as possible so I can go home and see my wife and kids. And so I have not found a good church here, not because there aren't many good churches, but because I'm just never here on Sundays. Uh, I do go to the daily mass and confession of the church that's right behind. I think the Heart Building. Um. And, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a very beautiful church. I found every, everybody there, uh, very, very kind and very welcoming. Um, but you know, it's definitely like my Catholicism is mostly confined to my life, life in Cincinnati because, you know, we're busy during the day and, uh, most people go to church on weekends, myself included. I do think that, you know, I found a very good network of, you know, Catholic leaders, intellectuals, staffers, and members who I think, you know, all of us are sort of circling around some of the same problems, right? What what is what does Christian social doctrine mean in 21st century America, right? What is what what you know, what are our views about the unborn and how we have to be committed to them, not just through legal protections but also through other means as well? Uh, what does it mean to build an economy that's sort of consistent with I think the dictates of Leo the Thirteenth? Um, that's not just geared towards consumption, but is geared towards the productive capacity of our workers, making sure they can earn a fair living uh, from from the sweat of their brow. So I think there there are these deep questions that I think are fundamentally Christian questions, though obviously uh, they're 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 very much Catholic questions um, specifically because of some of the histories or some of the some of the history of the church. But you know, I I found that just a lot of young Christians are grappling with these, mostly Catholics, but also some Protestants as well. And I think it's a good thing. And I also think it provides some vigor to our movement. The, the thing that I, I, you know, you hear this term thrown around Christian nationalism all the time, which is, you know, of course, meant to be very scary. And um, I'm sure my communications director back there is very scared that I'm going to say something <laughs> controversial right now. But um, the, the the thing that we have not figured out in 21st century America, and look, let's, let's be honest here, uh, we're a country that is majority Christian nominally, but not nearly majority Christian in terms of practice, is, you know, we're a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious democracy that's heavily expo- exposed to the economic forces of globalization. And I think that we're, we have not yet figured out how to, how to harmonize that with some basic sense of what it means to be an American in the 21st century. Um, and I happen to think that the Christian faith is a good way of helping provide an answer to that question. I recognize some people disagree, but even, you know, a couple of my more thoughtful Democratic colleagues, there was a Wall Street Journal poll that came out a couple of days ago where it talked about, you know, it was like 20 or 30 years ago, what Americans valued compared to what they value today. And the basic takeaway was things like patriotism, love of country, love of children, were major driving forces of meaning for most American adults 30 years ago, and now they don't matter for a majority of American adults. Well, that's pretty weird, okay? 
And it also raises some very difficult questions, like what does it mean to be an American in 2023? It can't just mean, oh, we're all committed to the same ideas, okay? What, what ideas are we committed to? And number two, um, do those ideas, are they actually broadly shared across the political spectrum? Like, I'm very committed to the idea that Pfizer should not make $8 billion a year chemically castrating children, okay? You monster. But is, but, is, but, is, but, is, but is that something, is that something that is broadly shared? I think by the population, yes, but by our leadership, absolutely not. So I think we have a very tough question. And one of the, the deeper issues for our entire movement is we have to figure out some unifying principle that allows us to have a nation together, not just a collection of disparate ethnic, religious, and cultural groups. Because if we don't figure that out, then uh, we're going to have some real problems. Next question. Up front. Thank you, uh, Senator Vance, for coming out. And I also recommend checking out the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception if you're looking for a good church to check out. Thank you. Um, so there's been a lot CUA of... CUA students. <laughs> so there's been a lot of debate on the right um, with this new policy that was put out on Comp Compact Magazine called Make Birth Free. Um, a lot of, I guess, the establishment people were freaked out that the government was doing their job and taking care of their citizens. But as <laughs> someone who's in the Senate and having the process played out, how likely do you think a policy like make birth free or something similar to it is likely in the current state that we're in? Yeah, so I, I shared this article, actually, and I've been explicitly on record as supporting this policy. And Which I just, thought was wild. Yeah. <laughs> it was you. like three weeks of you being in the Senate. <laughs> yeah. No, that definitely turned some heads. I got a lot of questions about that. Um, but but the I mean, one thing I'll say about this is institutional po politics and institutional power really matters. And the fact that a lot of the pro-life movement has gotten on board in principle with this, not necessarily how to do it, but has gotten on board in principle with this is a pretty big deal. I think it makes it much more likely that it will happen. You know, two, my, my, my view of this is just philosophically, um, one of the things that I think that our government should be doing is ensuring that people, um, is, is ensuring that entities, whether it's the government or major corporations, don't immiserate people for decisions that are really outside of their control, right? Very hard to have real liberty in the sense that our founders actually meant it if you can't actually control your own life without being immiserated by somebody, whether it's the IRS or by an insurance company. And I, I really worry that you know, we've, you know, Republicans, if we're not willing to sort of accept that something has gone terribly wrong in American healthcare, especially for young mothers, uh, that we, we, we've made a big mistake here. So, uh, you know, just a personal example. And I, you know, as Swarab said, I, I, you know, was, was worked in technology and venture capital. I'm not complaining about this because the financial hit, but because it illustrates a problem that for the majority of Americans would be catastrophic, which is during, you know, my wife, we have three kids together, five, three, and one. During uh, the delivery of baby number two, um, my, uh, my, my wife chose the wrong anesthesiologist, somebody who was out of network, and we then got a bill like, for like $20,000 because in the heat of delivery, she chose the wrong anesthesiologist. And anybody who's ever been there with somebody while they're having a baby will recognize you're not really making choices in that moment. You're saying, holy shit, this is terrible. Make it stop, right? Um, and that that the failure to realize that we can either be on the side of the insurance company or of young mothers is a real failure if we don't make that decision. And I think that we, we can, and I think that we will. Now, of course, 
we do have massive budget deficits. And so one good faith question I've gotten from some of my colleagues on this, this issue, meaning from the Republican side, is, well, you know, this would cost conservatively $40 billion a year, aggressively $60 billion a year. How do we actually pay for this in a world of skyrocketing budget deficits? And of course, my response is, well, we sent about $120 billion to Ukraine, so uh, we can actually save $60 billion and do this thing, even on the aggressive cost estimates. But, you know, that, that's, that's maybe a harder sell for some of my colleagues. Um, the, but the, the answer to your question is, I want to do this. I want to figure out a way to make it happen. The critical thing that, we'll, that I have to figure out, two things. One is structurally how to do it, okay? I think some of the Democrats would be fine with doing it if you just fold it into the Medicare program. I think there's some issues with doing it in that way. Second is, how do you pay for it? And I think on both of those issues, we can get to a good answer. And then it's my job to sell it to my colleagues, and hopefully we can make something happen. Next question. Noel. Thank you for being here, Senator Vance. I'm Noelle Garnier from the National Religious Broadcasters Association. And I was wondering, in your experience, which media voices and media platforms are most influential in shaping the thinking of middle America? Yeah, so, you know, obviously I'd start with my friend Tucker Carlson. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, I, you know, once a week I worry that something terrible will happen to Tucker Carlson because <laughs> I think that if it did, uh, we would be in a much, much worse position as a movement. Uh, there's no person who's one to your point, I think, more influential with middle America, more influential with our own base, but also willing to say things that you're not supposed to say. Uh, and so I, I think Tucker is critically important. I think, of course, a lot of our religious broadcasters are extremely well watched, are very influential. Um, I grew up watching you know, Trinity Broadcasting Network. So I, you know, I, I, I sort of know a lot of um, a lot of a lot of that programming, um, you know. There is a big generational divide, right? So one of the interesting things about Tucker's program is it's one of the few programs in the Fox primetime lineup that has a very broad range of age ranges. That's especially true if you count the social media shares. Um, you know, Hannity has a great viewership and he's been very good to me. His viewership, I mean, let's be honest, it trends a little older, okay? Hate to say it, but it does, all right? Um... We have a lot of, I think, exciting podcasters and, you know, YouTubers and people on Rumble that are doing a lot of cool things that have, you know, broader reach with the younger audience. But I, but I actually think one of the issues that we have as a movement is that the young conservatives are not talking as much to the old conservatives, and that's most reflected in the media platforms. Tucker is maybe the one exception to that. Uh, religious broadcasters may actually be another exception to that. But my sense is that we have a pretty bad generational divide between media consumption on the right. It comes from, I think, an interesting place of pessimism. And, and you realize this during your campaign. And it's something I've known for a long time, too, because I kind of straddled both worlds is I think a lot of young conservatives think, oh, the olds, the boomers, they don't get it. They'll yeah. never get it. And I remember you telling me all the time during your campaign where you were like, the base is more radical than we are. These That's boomers right. yeah. really get it. Um, can you speak to that at all? Like, should we don't give up on the olds? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, <laughs> one of uh, one of the wildest experiences I had in the campaign, it was before I was a declared candidate and I was railing against big tech and they had just done something. They had censored some voice and I was very fired up about it. And, you know, like the other candidates were there and they gave the sort of standard pablum and talking points. And I was like, you know, went on this 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 rager against big tech 
And some guy afterwards came up to me and he said, you know, I, you know, I, I liked a lot of what you said, but I was really worried by what you said about big tech. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I expected kind of, you know, like like a David French guy. Right. He was sort of really worried about interfering in the private market or something. You know, my brain had been warped maybe by spending too much time um, reading, uh, reading people like that. And what he said was, you know, your problem you're right about that. You're right about the problems. But the solution is, why don't we just throw these guys in prison for life? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's OK. You know, you're, you disagree with me for totally different reasons than what I expected here. But again and again, you talk to our actual the members of the Republican base, you know, the, the people, you know, the, the pejorative so-called boomers. And they're actually much, much more interesting and much more sympathetic with a lot of the things that we talk about than people think. Now, that doesn't mean they're necessarily consuming media. I think that's partially a, that, that's a medium issue, right? They're not watching TV on Rumble. They're not watching, you know, Dave Rubin on YouTube. They're watching mainly cable network TV. So I, I think that there is a medium issue there. But I think broadly speaking, we're actually speaking the same language on a lot of this stuff. Next question. Gabriella. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. So I appreciated your comments earlier on the state of the defense military, I'm sorry, the defense industrial base. Um, I'm sure you've seen that there's a lot of enthusiasm for funneling money to startup type ventures in the defense tech space, especially, um, frankly, Silicon Valley is not going to turn out the sort of just basic industrial issues material that we need to win a war. Um, what are your thoughts on one rebuilding the actual sort of concrete defense industrial base? And second, what are your thoughts on a national maritime strategy? Ohio is a water state after all. Yeah. Um, people don't realize that. We have Lake Erie. We have the Ohio River. We're actually bordered by a lot of water in Ohio. Um, so there are a couple of startups that I'm optimistic about. Again, I, you know, state full disclosure, I, I was a seed investor in Anduril. I think they're very interesting and their team is actually aligned on a lot of the big questions. So I have some hope for them. Um, there's another one, what is it, Hadrian, that's pretty interesting and is trying to reshore a lot of the defense industrial base. I have no financial stake in them, but I think they're very interesting and very aligned on some things. So there are exceptions, but by and large, you're right. right? Silicon Valley is too woke to actually be interested in participating in, in, in building weapons for uh, the United States of America. And that's, that's something I, I, I worry about, but it's a problem uh, to deal with. I, I guess my basic sort of view here is that it requires both a president and a Congress that is really committed to changing the way that we procure weapons in the United States of America. So I don't know when this happened, but one of the big problems that we had with defense policy is that we instituted what's called cost plus accounting in a lot of big defense projects. Now, what does that mean? That means that if you bid your Raytheon or you know Boeing or whoever, or Lockheed, and you bid on a project, you're primarily bidding effectively on an estimate of the cost and then you take some margin on top of it, that becomes the pro your, your profit on the project. Now, what does that mean, though? That means if the cost of the project goes way over, you still make money, okay? And so we almost incentivize cost overruns, which I think, you know, really disincentivizes a lot of the things that you would like in a defense, in, in a defense manufacturer, which is, look, how about we just pay you a certain sum of money? And if you come in way under cost, great, you get even richer. OK, but if you come in way over cost, then you have to eat some of it, not the American taxpayer. 
Uh, I think that procurement strategy has to really change, but I think that requires really like a president, a sec def, a chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee. You need a full government approach to fixing that problem because the institutional interests pushing back against it are just very strong. Um, the other thing that I'd say about our defense industrial base problem is we've gotten way too into gadgets and wizardry and not enough into volume. The Soviets, and I hate to say it, but the Soviets obviously had a very big role in World War II. Okay, we sometimes underappreciate that. Um, you know, yeah, us and the Brits did a lot of the work, but the Soviets did a lot of the work too. You know how they did it? By manufacturing not better tanks than the Germans. Their tanks were way worse than the Germans. They just manufactured a lot of them. What I really worry about with our industrial base, whether it comes to sea power, munitions, air power, land power, we're really bad at high volume manufacturing. We can make a really cool M1 Abrams that has a ton of new gadgets on it. Can we make 300 of them very quickly? No, we can't. Question. Uh, so, uh, especially in Washington, D.C., there's a lot of conversation uh, taking place about the next election that's coming up. And my question isn't really about that, but that sets the stage of it. Uh, there's... A lot of general pessimism about the next election coming up uh, regarding, you know, how how these last midterms went. Uh, but what I'm curious about is, are you optimistic or are you more pessimistic about the future of America, not about the next election, but rather the next generation? Yeah. And um, so I, I would say I'm neither a pessimist or an optimist, I'm hopeful about America because I still think that we have the best people in the world. And I think that we have an incredibly proud history and we have institutions that though broken in a lot of ways are still relatively responsive to, to the American people. Uh, to, to me, you know, let's just take the Ukraine issue where, you know, obviously I think I'm right. And I think everybody who disagrees with me is wrong. <laughs> We've got zero. Right. We, we, we've gotten just in a year, um, a majority of the Republican base now is skeptical of our posture in Ukraine, um, whereas it was probably two senators in the last Congress. It's now at least 10 senators in this Congress who are closer to where I am, and then probably another 10 senators on top of that who are somewhere in the middle of the establishment consensus and where I am. And that suggests that our institutions are actually pretty responsive to the will of the people. And if the will of the people is good, then fundamentally that that suggests some good things. Um, I also, you know, the, the thing that I'm really worried about with America, the West more broadly, is this crisis of meaning that I talked about earlier. How do we actually identify ourselves as Americans? What unites us together? What drives us together? Um, and you see that maybe most obviously reflected in our in our fertility numbers, right? Um, that maybe the best signal of whether you're hopeful about the future or non-hopeful about the future is, you know, are you having kids? And, you know, I have three of them and you know, it makes me, I think, pretty hopeful about the future. But I worry because that's not where a lot of our fellow citizens are. There's clearly something very broken about how we transmit values and opportunities and prosperity from one generation to the next. And I think we have to figure out that problem. Now, the counter argument is everybody seems to be having this problem right now. Uh, there are very few countries, in fact, maybe the only country that has an advanced economy that has figured out the demographics pretty well is Israel. 
Um, and by the way, I think that that suggests there is a lot that we can learn uh, from Israel. And unfortunately, um, you know, Israel just had its own effort to, I think, really dismantle its own deep state and they were pushed back. But that country is fundamentally thriving in a way most Western countries are not. Frankly, most Eastern countries are not either. So what that means is these problems are not endemic. They're not unsolvable. And I think we have probably the best country at solving problems still in the world today. Uh, but but we're going to figure out a lot in the next 20 years. I think we're going to figure out a lot about what the country is made of and whether all of the problems that a lot of us have been warning about for years, what conservatives some have been warning about since, you know, well before I was born, we're going to figure out whether those problems are solvable or whether they've caused some much deeper issues. But I'm fundamentally hopeful about our country. I think we're going to figure it out. I think we're going to have a better next generation than this generation. And I think that the best weapon, the best weapon the opposition has is to allow the people in this room the people listening to this podcast to get depressed. Um, you know, when I was thinking about running for Senate about two years ago, actually a little bit longer than, than that, um, Rob Portman had just announced his retirement. I was talking to a dear friend of mine who was very influential to me converting to Catholicism. And uh, I was talking about, you know, frankly, I was whining. I was talking about how bad things were. You know, there's all these issues and there's all that issues. And, you know, we've lost the big corporations. We've lost the bureaucracy. We've lost the Department of Justice. The border crisis is a disaster. I was whining and he kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. And he said, you're right. You know, things aren't going super well in America right now, but despair is a sin. And I thought a lot about that in the past couple of years because I meet a lot of people and I talk to a lot of conservatives. And I think there is a certain sense of despair that exists among the grassroots of the conservative movement. And despairing is exactly where they want us to be. So however you have to do it, find some hope get reengaged and be a believer in this country because that's how we're going to win. Senator, to close us out, um, you know, you and I both agree that a lot of the themes that we talk about on the new right or whatever you want to call it have antecedents long before President Trump started running. Sure. There's Pat Buchanan, there's others. Um, but there was definitely an apogee in 2016 when President Trump ran on all these themes and won. Um, we're now six and a half years and change uh, past that. What's some direction that you now as a United States senator would give to people who want to see that broad ideological paradigm shift in American life? What should they be thinking about? What should they be paying attention to? And, and how should they be acting at this moment in time? So I, I give a few pieces of advice. Uh, the first is um, try to be successful in life. Um, in, in, your, in, in whatever your chosen career or profession is, whether you're an academic or whether you're working in the private sector, we need a lot more successful conservatives in the private sector, by the way, or whether you're working in government here on Capitol Hill, try to be successful at what you're doing, okay? Not because success for its own sake, but try to be good at it. Try to be smarter than the opposition. Try to understand the issues a little bit better. When you get into an argument with somebody, make sure you can win that argument. That's number one, okay? Uh, number two is there is nothing that will give you a sense of purpose and a sense of what we're fighting for than I think having a family. And I recognize that's hard to do. I would not want to be a 22-year-old conservative dating in Washington, D.C. got a less than one week old back there. Well, that's true. It worked out for some of us. Um, Nick, good job. Beautiful baby. And um, wait, how old is your... Less than a week? Less oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's someone else Sorry. who used to work I'm, I'm, for us who okay. had a child like Sorry a week about ago. that. <laughs> Sorry about that. How old are you? Your baby's like three months? Four months. Four. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. 
Um, but, you know, kids will give you an incredible perspective on the future, on what you're ultimately here for. When we talk about the innocence of youth and when we talk about the innocence of the unborn, it's one thing to say that and to believe it in the abstract. It's another thing to have a personal affiliation and a personal knowledge of that yourself. So if you can, again, I know it's hard, start a family, actually do the things that give you a sense of purpose and meaning because they're going to make you a much, much better advocate for the things that we all care about. Um, And I, I guess the third piece of advice I'd give is, like I said earlier, don't despair. It's the very best weapon that the opposition has. I see it in way too many young conservatives. And if you want to win this fight, the country's not going to be saved by people who are depressed and have given up. It's going to be saved by people who believe in the future. So believe in the future. I certainly do. And we're not going to win without it. It never gets old to say it. But please, everyone, give a round of applause to Senator J.D. Vance, already making an impact, barely been here for a few weeks. Thank you, sir. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.